Well, I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open up with me to John chapter 13. Uh, We're back in uh, the Gospel of John after taking a break uh, over the, the summer. And uh, I'm excited to be back uh, in uh, that gospel. Uh, as, uh, as you're turning there, uh, if we were to be very, very honest, uh, most uh, days of our lives are forgettable. Right? Without consulting your calendar, uh, could you tell me uh, what uh, you did on any given day three months ago? let alone three years ago, right? Maybe if it was a regular, regular meeting that you have, uh, a regular routine, uh, but that would be difficult. Uh, and uh, so most days are forgettable. There are some days that are memorable, where you may remember what happened, but not every little detail of what was said or done. You may remember uh, going to a, a baseball game, uh, but you probably don't remember the exact score. I know some of the baseball fans out there, but wait a second, I can tell you everything that happened in that game, right? Uh, so uh, there, there are some days that are uh, memorable, remember a little bit of what happened, uh, and there are some days that are unforgettable. Uh, there are some sporting events that are unforgettable. Those sport fans, are, I, can, I can remember every exact uh, score, uh, every exact play. There are some unforgettable moments that are unforgettable because they are funny. Uh, humor has a way of etching things into our minds. And what do we tend to do with funny stories? We retell them. Uh, and, uh, and in the retelling, uh, to the embarrassment of our children over and over again, uh, th- those stories get etched into our minds and they become more and more unforgettable. But, but there are also other kinds of events that seem to be seared into our memory. Uh, And I would say especially tragic events. I think every one of us probably remembers exactly where you were uh, on uh, September 11th, 2001, uh, when you heard the news of the terrorist attacks. Uh, Two generations prior to that, people spoke about remembering exactly where they were uh, when President Kennedy was assassinated. when, When sudden tragic news comes your way, You tend to remember uh, the details of where you were. Then there are other celebratory events, tremendously good news events that that create an unforgettable moment. Remember, uh, after years and years of of trying to to have children, I remember how and exactly when my wife told me that she was pregnant. Uh, That that was a, a time of rejoicing. Uh, and uh, we, we celebrated and enjoyed that. Uh, I, I wept. Uh, it was just such tremendous, tremendous news. Uh, there are those unforgettable moments uh, that are great. The birth of a child, an engagement, a wedding, a birthday celebration. All of these are unforgettable. Uh, but as we come to John 13, uh, we are coming uh, to an unforgettable 24 hours for the apostles. Uh, And uh, they are unforgettable because they are pretty much uh, all of those things that I just mentioned combined into one. Uh, uh, This uh, 24 hours occurred, uh, depending on how you date the life of Christ, uh, either at 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. Uh, But this this 24-hour period had such an impact upon the Apostle John that he uh, remembers it with great clarity... Uh, when he is writing uh, this gospel account nearly 50 years later. John wrote uh, sometime between AD 80 and 90. Right, so think about that. How, how many uh, 
24-hour periods, how many evenings or conversations are you going to be able to remember 50 years from now? But the Apostle John remembered the details and the conversation of this particular 24-hour period. And John spends nearly one-third of his gospel, seven chapters out of 21, which I guess is exactly one-third. Not nearly one-third. It is one-third. He spends one-third of his gospel telling us about this 24-hour period. So we we may uh, ask, what is it that's so unique and unforgettable about this 24-hour period that John is going to recount to us uh, in chapters 13 through 19? Well, we're going to have a celebration. Jesus is going to celebrate the Passover meal with his 12 disciples. Uh, There's going to be the unexpected Jesus is going to to get up in the middle of that meal and he's going to wash the disciples' feet, showing a huge uh, role reversal of what should have taken place. That'll be seared into their memories. There's unexpected topics of conversation as Jesus tells the, the 12 disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And that's unfathomable to them. They don't believe it. In addition to that, Jesus says that he's going to be departing from them and that it's a good thing. And they say, what? He also says that in addition to him departing, they're going to be experiencing persecution from the world. But he's going to send a helper to sustain them. Then in John 17, the disciples are going to, to witness the son's intimate prayer to the father. One of the the most profound chapters in all of Scripture, what's become known as the high priestly prayer. To see the Son communing with the Father. And then, tragedy. Judas will betray Jesus and he's going to be arrested in the garden. He's going to be uh, taken away. So one of those twelve betrays him. And then the other eleven abandon him. Do you remember your biggest mistakes in life? That's why this is such an unforgettable 24 hours for the Apostle John. Then the 11 disciples scatter. They see uh, their master, the one that they have followed, their rabbi, who's taught them and lived with them and walked with them for the last three years. They see him arrested and then unjustly tried. And if you read the gospel accounts... You can tell that that the 11 disciples, even though they they scattered, they're still observing. They still want to know what's going to happen. They're watching from a distance. As Jesus is tried before the Sanhedrin, as he's taken before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate, as he's unjustly condemned, as he carries the cross to Calvary, as he's nailed there, as he hangs there for six hours. The last three of which there's darkness that covers the land from noon to 3 p.m. This is an absolutely unforgettable 24 hours for the apostles. And the apostle John is inviting us in to experience it with him. We are coming to uh, one of the most profound portions of scripture. We get to come and see what took place uh, as Jesus' public ministry has come to a close. That was John 1 through 12. 
He's no longer uh, in and among the crowds. He's no longer teaching and performing miracles. But his entire focus is now upon these 12 men that have walked with him and followed him. And he is going to prepare them for his departure. He's going to prepare them to lead the church once he is ascended into heaven. That's what we are jumping into as we come to John 13. Won't you look with me, beginning in verse 1. We're going to study through verse 11 this morning, and I'd like to read that together. John says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, and that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he tied it around himself. And then he poured water into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. And so he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet, ever. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. But not all of you, for he knew that the one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. Let's pause and pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its trustworthiness. And it is trustworthy because you are trustworthy. We thank you that you have revealed to us in your word this night that Jesus spent with his disciples. We pray that you would grant us wisdom, grant us understanding. Help us to understand now what the apostles did not understand in that moment. Help us to see clearly and help us to reorient our hearts and lives. Help us to respond to what you have written to us in your word that we would echo back to you. Uh, with lives of worship, all that you have commanded. So lead us and guide us now by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, our Redeemer, Jesus. Amen. So what we see here is that on the eve of his crucifixion, Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. Uh, And this action of uh, washing uh, the feet is... Is really an acted out parable. 
Uh, it is an action that is uh, full of uh, meaning and depth uh, according to the, what is uh, performed and taking place. And in that sense, it's very similar to uh, the triumphal entry, uh, as we saw back in John uh, 12. When, when Jesus comes in uh, riding on a donkey rather than riding on a war horse, he is communicating something. Uh, that he is coming in humility and meekness, uh, not as the, the conquering Messiah that the Jewish people expected. Uh, and this is going to be an acted out parable at well in which Jesus is going to teach and communicate some truths to his disciples, truths that they desperately need to know and to see on display. And really, there are going to be three lessons that are emphasized here in verses 1 through 11. The first of these lessons could say that the setting of this act emphasizes Christ's love for his own. This is the first lesson that Christ loves his own. To the end. Back in John chapter 12, verse 1, we saw uh, kind of a time stamp. With it. it was six days before the Passover. Then in John 12, 12, we saw that it was uh, the next day after that. And now in 13, 1, we see that uh, it is the first day of the Feast of Passover. And the Apostle John highlights uh, what Jesus already knew and how he was acting accordingly at that time. If you look at verses 1 through 3, Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. So Jesus knew that his time to depart had arrived. Uh, As we've seen in uh, John's gospel, there was uh, a continued emphasis that uh, Jesus would kind of get into trouble, but the the Jews were not able to, to grab him and arrest him at that time because... His hour had not yet come. Uh, His hour of glory, his hour of suffering. Uh, But now, he says, this is the time. And so he knows uh, his time is now limited. It's time for him to to depart and go back to the Father. He also knows that uh, Judas Iscariot is going to betray him. Uh, And ultimately, what we see is that uh, Judas is going to to act according to uh, a plan, according to the desires of his own heart. But there is also a, a... uh, higher power behind uh, the plan. And we see that ultimately Satan uh, is behind the plan to uh, betray Christ. And Jesus is fully aware of this. Jesus is fully aware, verse 3, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was going to be going back to the Father. Now, and see, what these verses serve to do is they serve to, to elevate Jesus higher and higher and higher. He knows exactly where he's going to be going in just a little bit. And yet he's going to be willing to humble himself in that moment. But when he, the moment where he should be receiving all the glory, honor, and praise because of what he's about to do, he doesn't receive any of it. He gets bickering disciples, as we will see. But he knows all of this. And what's really, really profound is that statement at the end of verse 1. So knowing all of these things, Jesus loved his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. And that, that phrase, he loved them to the end, carries really kind of two ideas that are intertwined. The first being that Jesus loved them to the end of his own life. He never ceased loving them. But also, it's the idea that he loved them to the uttermost. Uh, There is no love that he held back from them. 
He bestowed it all upon them. We see this in John 15, 13, just a little bit later in this uh, upper room scene. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. As this scene begins to unfold, John is emphasizing the love of Christ for his people. That Jesus has loved all of those who belong to him in the world, and he has loved them to the uttermost. And Jesus' action here and the very next day on the cross are going to, uh, to demonstrate his love. But there are really going to be two different demonstrations of what love looks like. See, when Jesus goes to the cross the next day, uh, he's going to love his own to the uttermost by, by doing what they could never do for themselves. He's going to go to the cross and he's going to pay the penalty for their sins. Uh, he, he's going to have his blood shed on their behalf so they could be reconciled to the God that they have sinned against. He's going to bring reconciliation. He's going to to love them sacrificially in the biggest way possible by dying for his people. He's going to receive the wrath of God in our place. That's going to be seen the next day on the cross. But in this foot washing that's about to take place, we're going to see love in a much smaller way, but no less profound. It's a love demonstrated in a very humble, very profound way. And again, it's profound because of the heights established in these verses. But knowing that all of these things were true and what he was going to be glorified, he humbles himself and serves. And he does this out of love. And you might call these two, two demonstrations of love, uh, a sacrificial love on the cross and a serving love here in washing the disciples' feet. And we are supposed to be ready to do both. Ultimately, when we get uh, to next week, verses 12 to 17, Jesus is going to look back on what he did. And he's going to tell the disciples, I've done this as an example for you to follow. And we have to be ready to love in that sacrificial way and in that serving way. Now, we as husbands are often willing to to lay down our lives for our uh, wife for our children, right? I mean, that's really a hypothetical. I'm willing to take a bullet for you, babe. I'm willing to do it. Uh, again, it's a hypothetical. Uh, it's hard to, to do that unless a situation actually arises. But we ought to be ready to love in that way. That is a part of what it means to be a husband and a father. Uh, and we need to raise up our sons to be willing to love in that way. Side note there, but we need to be ready. Uh, But what we are willing to do sometimes as husbands and fathers uh, in that hypothetical arena, we are unwilling to do in another arena. We're willing to say, I'm ready to love you sacrificially, but I'm not that ready to love you servingly. Not that ready to do the the humble, menial tasks that demonstrate my love, care, and concern. And we as husbands need to be willing to love Christ sacrificially. Or love our wives as Christ loved his church. Humbly and sacrificially and also servingly. Several several years ago, before I was a believer, uh, I went to visit my family back in uh, in Minnesota. And I was eating, eating dinner with them and my uncle w- was there and he had three uh, teenage kids. Uh, a daughter and then two younger sons. Uh, and uh, after the meal, I remember he... he he got up and he said, okay, let's, let's all do the dishes and let's show mom that we love her. And, and to me, that was, that was profound. I had done dishes as a kid, but it was never with that motivation. 
It was always, hey, do the dishes. Okay, make sure they're done. But, but this idea that doing the dishes would be an act of love towards someone else was profound to me. It stood out. You know, I wasn't a believer at that time, but, but, but that made a mark. And that's what we have to, to see and understand. How to rightly demonstrate love. Sometimes it's through sacrifice, sometimes it's through service. And Jesus is going to demonstrate both kinds of love in this 24-hour period. And the depth of his love is on display in the upper room as he humbles himself. And what we need to see here is that the love of Christ should encourage us to approach him. Right? If he's going to, to love us in a grand, big way, he's also going to love us in a very, very small, minimalistic way. Right? Was it last, last month that we read through First and Second Kings? Right, did you notice that there was big, big redemption in First and Second Kings? Right, delivering uh, from uh, Sennacherib, uh, deliverance from the, the armies of Assyria. God brings about huge redemption for Israel, but He also provides for His people. Right, uh, the the, uh, the raising of uh, the dead uh, by uh, Elisha, uh, the provision of uh, oil for the widow. Right, even an axe head is lost, and what does Elisha do? Okay, let's bring the axe head back up to the water. All of those communicate God cares for his people and will provide for them even in the smallest ways. This is the love of God on display. And because Christ is a good and loving Savior, we should not be afraid to approach him. And we should not shrink back uh, and believe that we won't be accepted by him. Now, we can approach him with confidence. No one should fear being cast out by Jesus. He loves us to the end of his life and our lives. He loves us to the uttermost, never changing or shifting for any reason. I love the way J.C. Ryle puts it. He says, Jesus will never reject any servant because of feeble service and weak performance. Those whom he received, he always keeps. And those whom he loves at first, he loves at last. Amen? That's the kind of love that Christ has for his own in the world. He loves them to the uttermost. That's the first lesson that is emphasized here in verses 1 through 3. But there's a second lesson emphasized in verses 4 and 5. You can say that the description of this act emphasizes Christ's humble service. If you look at verses uh, 4 and 5, almost as if, John is describing things in slow motion, right? Uh, he, he takes everything step by step, uh, and, and we'll look at that. But, but there's, there's a, it's very important for us to understand this scene of the upper room, uh, of what is taking place. Uh, if you flip back with me uh, to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, you can do a little bit of cross-referencing. There had been an ongoing debate an ongoing argument among the 12 disciples. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 46. It says, Now an argument started among them, meaning the 12, as to which of them might be the greatest. 
See, this is the ongoing argument. As, as they begin to see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they are anticipating that he's going to uh, conquer Rome, bring in the kingdom of Israel, and rule and reign over the nations. And they are all kind of jockeying for position, right? They're using those el- sanctified elbows or unsanctified elbows rather, uh, to try and be first. Now, we see this uh, in Luke's gospel. As we were reading through Matthew's gospel, we saw uh, that... Uh, James and John, and John conveniently leaves this out of his own gospel account. They send their mom. What does send their mom to do? Hey, mom, can you go ask Jesus to give me a seat of honor? Like, I want to sit at his left and right when he comes in his kingdom. Can you ask him that for me? Matthew 19. But if, you, if you're there in Luke, turn from chapter 9, turn over to Luke 22. This is a, a parallel passage of the Last Supper. So we see this, this ongoing debate throughout Jesus' ministry by his disciples. But what's really, really amazing is that it's continuing into this, this evening celebration of the Passover on the eve of Christ's crucifixion. Luke 22, verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be greatest. So we can imagine this scene in the upper room in our, in our minds, how they would eat uh, that meal as the, the table would be uh, low lying on the ground and uh, Jesus and the, the twelve would be uh, reclining or laying on their, their sides on thinly padded uh, mattresses. Uh, they'd be leaning on their, their left elbow so they could reach with their right hand and get food off of the table. And they would be laying each one of them with their feet uh, outward behind them so that no one's feet are kind of in anybody else's face. And there's a, there's a portion in the, the Passover meal that uh, would come uh, and it would be customary for, uh, for feet to be washed. This is what uh, one Bible commentator says. That either a servant would be provided to do the washing, or the one in the lowest position would assume a servant's role and wash the feet of all at the meal. He says, none of the disciples would have thought of arising from the table to wash the feet of those present, for that would have been a public announcement that they considered themselves the least when each one wanted to be the greatest. They all know what should have happened as they're eating that meal. But none of them wanted to do it. I loved working uh, the playground duty uh, at the Christian elementary school at our uh, sending church. Uh, whenever you know, two kids would, would run up and, and argue, well, he took the ball from me and did this and all of this. And I'd say, okay, well, which one of you wants to love the other person and let them play with it first? They just kind of get this awkward standing look. Like, well, sometimes they would get it. I started to do that with my sons, and, and one of them said, well, brother can let me go first. Um, and I, well, that's not exactly what, uh, what that means. But that's what the 12 are doing here, right? They're saying, hey, I'm, I'm happy for you guys to announce that you're the least by going and washing my feet. They're all just waiting for someone else to do it. You can imagine the disciples are reclining and, and arguing when something happens. 
And I think when this something happens, that the room goes completely silent for several minutes. Again, look at how John describes this in verse 4. Jesus got up from supper. They're all waiting to see who, which of them is going to do it. But their master, their teacher, the one to whom they have said is the Messiah, who is himself God, he gets up. He lays aside his garments. He takes a towel. He tied it around himself. He would have girded it up on his shoulder, tied it around his waist so he would be able to use the end of it to wipe their feet. And then he poured water into the wash basin. They began to wash the disciples' feet and then to wipe them with the towel which he had tied around himself. And we don't know, well, let me backtrack. We know that Jesus washes all of their feet, including Judas. We don't know where Peter was in the order of being washed, but we know that he's the first one to speak up. We'll take a look at that in a few minutes. But I think that entire time, as Jesus, from the time that he gets up, uh, a hush in the room And then they're probably just silently watching him do all of these things. Then Peter breaks the silence. And we don't know when, and kind of parallel passages, we don't know when this is said, but this is what immediately follows in Luke 22. After, you know, that verse that we read of, there arose a dispute among them, but this is what Jesus said. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. See, Jesus didn't merely teach this. He got up and he modeled this. And yet this action of washing the disciples' feet is only a foreshadowing of the humility that Christ is going to demonstrate the next day. He doesn't just humble himself in serving men. He humbles himself in dying for men. And these men are silenced and astonished. I think they were truly pierced absolutely humbled and pierced because as soon as jesus gets up and he's doing all of these things what's each one of them thinking i should have done that that should have been me they immediately see their error and they're going to be even more ashamed and humbled the next day when jesus goes to the cross for them carrying not only the wood of the cross, but the sins of his people on his back. And the Apostle Paul points to the humility of Jesus being the example that we are to follow. But he doesn't point to the foot washing, he points to the cross. 
you turn over in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 3, the apostle writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. And do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See what the Apostle Paul says there in Philippians 2, we are seeing uh, a microcosm of that in John 13. Right? Jesus is equal with God. He's going back to God. But what does he do? He humbles himself and serves out of love for those who belong to him. One pastor puts it this way, selfless humility is the soul of love. Only humble people love, and your capacity to love is directly related to your capacity to humble yourself. You struggle to love others because you are proud. You struggle to love others because you love yourself too much. Right? All of the disciples, as they're sitting around the table... They wanted to be first more than they wanted to serve anybody else. Humility leads you to love others more. Pride leads you to love yourself more. And so we would see humility and love for others are inseparable. If you struggle with one, you're going to struggle with the other. And here we see Jesus displaying both love and humility. And yet even now he has not loved his own to the uttermost. Because he's going to demonstrate that even more so the next day. And this foot washing is just a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do on the cross. But the disciples don't quite understand this yet. Which is why one of them is going to object to what Jesus is doing. Which leads us to our our third lesson that is emphasized here. Or back in John's gospel, if if you turn back there. In verses 6 through 11... We see this, that the objection to the act emphasizes our need for salvation. If you look again at these verses, so Jesus was was working his way around the room, washing the feet of the disciples. And verse 6 says, he, he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Peter says this emphatically, emphasis upon you and my feet. You're going to wash those? You're going to wash me? And Jesus responds by by telling Peter that he does not yet understand what is happening. What I'm doing you do not realize now, but you will understand afterwards. And I think the afterwards is, well, in the Greek it's literally after these things, which probably refers to the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ uh, and the Spirit coming upon the church on the day of Pentecost. Then Peter understands everything fully and completely. But in this moment, he doesn't understand. But he understands later. 
And if you read through First uh, Peter as a letter, you'll see so many references to this night. Just listen to this, First Peter 5.5. 5. Listen to what Peter exhorts uh, the young men to do. He says, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Where is he getting that picture? Because he understood as soon as Jesus got up and put on that towel, what had he done? Jesus had clothed himself with humility to serve others. And that's what Peter is going to call others to do. That's what Peter is going to be an example of. But for now, Peter is still objecting to what Jesus is doing. So he objects the first time. He says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, this is, this is important, what I'm doing. You don't understand now, but you'll understand later. And then in verse 8, Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet, ever. And it's difficult to, to capture uh, the emphasis that is placed on this in the Greek. There's a double negative, which in Greek doesn't cancel it out, but it just heightens it. Uh, and then uh, there's the word forever in there. Like, Jesus, you will never, ever do this. Like, kind of in my sanctified imagination, imagine, like, Peter, when he, Jesus comes to him with the wash basin, he, like, kind of curls into the fetal position, like, brings his feet up to him, and is like, no, you're not going to do this. As if trying to keep his feet away from Jesus. Really interesting, because Peter is humble enough to recognize that uh, there's a, a role reversal that Jesus is demonstrating, but he's proud enough to rebuke his master. <laughs> he, he's proud enough to rebuke God, right? And while Peter spoke emphatically, Jesus responds dogmatically. Peter says, no way, you can't ever, ever do this. And Jesus says, if I don't do this, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. No portion. That's significant. And this statement is not intended to mean that this foot washing is somehow salvific in nature. Now this is, again, foreshadowing the cross. This is uh, foreshadowing the larger spiritual reality of what Jesus is doing. And Peter's objection provides Jesus with the opportunity to make things clear. Unless Jesus cleanses you, you have no part, no portion, no relationship with him. Unless he washes away the filth of sin that is on each of us, we have no relationship with God. This is a similar kind of echoing what... Jesus said back in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must be born of water and spirit. Jesus cleanses all those who believe in him. His blood uh, is uh, what uh, satisfies the wrath of God. All of the sin that you have committed against God is paid for, is washed away by the blood of Christ. His blood was shed. His body was sacrificed as an offering for sin on the cross so that all who trust in him would have a part with him. Listen to Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 through 22. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him, speaking of Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. 
And through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. How are we washed? How are we cleansed? By the blood of his cross. What's the net effect? What's the result? That we become holy and blameless before God. Jesus says, unless you do this, you have no part, no portion with him. Junior high boys, if I have your attention, please. When you are playing outside and you come in for dinner, what's the first thing your mama says to you? What does she say? Come on, mamas. You've said it before. Go wash your hands. Right? What if your son says, I don't want to wash my hands? What do you say? What's your response? Yeah. Or you just say, okay, there's no dinner. Right? Wash up, you get dinner. Don't wash up, there's no meal for you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Right? Unless he cleanses, unless he washes, you have no relationship with him or with God the Father. And But... Peter, hearing this, misunderstands. So he goes from one pendulum swing over here. You can't, don't touch me. He's got his feet curled up in my imagination. Uh, And then Jesus says, well, if I don't wash you, you have no part. He's like, okay, then wash all of me. Do do the head, do the hands, uh, do the feet. Just just clean me up. And Peter uh, thinks that the more that Jesus washes him, the more clean he will be. But that's not how the, the cleansing that Jesus provides works or operates. The, the cleansing that Christ offers is a once and for all cleansing. A cleansing that gets you uh, fully clean and in relationship with him. But once you have that, that full cleanness, uh, Jesus is then going to allude uh, or teach that there's an occasional touch-up meaning. Not that you contribute anything more, but just uh, if Jesus has washed you to maintain ongoing fellowship, you're going to confess sin Uh, the initial cleansing comes when you confess your sin and your need for a savior you look to christ in faith that's when the full and complete cleansing comes but then after that guess what you're gonna sin what do you do then well you you come and confess and ask for forgiveness but that's not the full and complete cleansing again that's just a small uh wipe down and Jesus uses this illustration. He, he, he points to the, the, kind of the, the bathing practices of his own time. In verse 10, he says, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So during that time, a lot of, most of the, the, the common people in Israel didn't have uh, you know, baths uh, in their, their home. So they would go to a public bath and get all cleaned up uh, just before they would be uh, expected to attend a meal so they would go get fully clean uh, but then when you're wearing sandals uh, and you walk through the dirty streets what's going to happen to your feet even though you just got fully clean as you walk on your way to the the feast that you're going to attend what's going to happen you're going to get a little bit of dirt on your feet Uh, and so but then when you arrive you were expected to just do a little touch-up Right? You'd, you'd sponge off uh, the small amount of dirt on your uh, feet, and then you would be presentable uh, in uh, that uh, feast or, or that meal that you were going to attend. And that's the illustration that Jesus is pointing to here. That once you're fully clean, you just have to do minor, minor things. And that's what he's emphasizing there with Peter. You know, there's a, the contrast between bathing and then a small, minor washing. 
And then, uh, what's amazing, the words in verse 10, But he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. And it's the plural, the southern form, y'all, in the Greek. But And y'all are clean. Now think about that. What would that, what would that have meant to you if Jesus affirms that you are saved? That you are fully clean and cleansed? Would that be a day that you'd remember? Yeah. Now, and not that you have to doubt your salvation. We have plenty of assurance. But that would be extra special. And that's what he says. But then he gives one little exception. He says, y'all are clean, but not all. And again, John points back to the reality that one, one of them, even though he has been walking with Jesus for three years, even though he has seen miracles and heard the teaching and done all of these things, one of them is still not actually forgiven and cleansed. One of them still is not in actual relationship with Jesus, even though he's like in relationship with Jesus, even though he's in and around and in the upper room for the Last Supper, Judas still does not know Jesus in a saving way. We'll talk about that more in coming weeks, but it's continually brought before our attention in John's Gospel. The powerful, powerful reminder. As we've, as we've looked at this passage, we've seen three lessons emphasized, right? Christ's love, Christ's humility, and our need for salvation through Christ. But why did Jesus choose to teach these lessons in this way? Parents, what do you do when your kids continue to argue about the same things over and over again? Right, when, the, when there's an ongoing argument or the, the same sins are committed repeatedly in your house. I know my temptation is to lecture. My five-year-old and my three-year-old. But Jesus at times teaches by lecture. At other times, he teaches with a shocking action. He he does something totally shocking and jarring. And then that provokes his disciples to ask some questions. They're confused a lot, right? That's an encouragement to us as we read the Bible. Like, what does this mean? Like, when he did that, like, what, what are you talking about? Jesus does something shocking. The disciples ask questions, and then he answers them and instructs them. Jesus teaches that way here. But he also teaches a particular topic by example rather than by lecture. How does he best teach love and humility? Not with a lecture, but by getting up and showing them this is what love and humility look like. And that lesson sticks with them a lot longer than a lecture. They've already heard lots of lectures, lots of teaching by Jesus, but what are they unable to get and apply? They're unable to really humble themselves. They still love themselves rather than loving one another. This is important for us to to think about. You cannot lecture anyone into loving. And Jesus knew ultimately that these men, these 11 who believed in him, trusted him, who followed him, who are going to abandon him when he's arrested, but they're going to come back. And they're going to be so faithful. He's going to task them with teaching his church. 
And what's one of the biggest lessons the church needs to learn? How to love. And these 11 men are going to be the ones who teach the church what it looks like to love and to humbly serve others. And what Jesus did when he got up and he washed their feet, he cemented in their mind, this is not just something to lecture others about. This is something that you are going to be called to do. And he's going to make that abundantly clear in verses 12 to 17, which we're going to look at next week. To to clear up all of the, the confusion, he's going to say, this is an example for you to follow. And Jesus didn't say that anywhere else in the four Gospels. But he says, this is instruction. This is what I want you to do. And this is important for us. What's the best way for us as individuals, for us as a church, what's the best way for us to teach others how to love? Not merely by words, but by action. Do you want your home to be more loving? What should you do? Love. Do you want your workplace to be more loving? What should you do? Love. Do you want your neighborhood to be more loving? Like my neighbors kind of fight and argue a lot. What should you do? Humble yourself. Love and serve. Do you want your church to be more loving? What are we called to do? Love. Not complain about others not loving you. Right? We are all too often just like the disciples. I'm happy for that person over there to serve me in my time of need. Right? To quote my sons, brother can serve, brother can let me go first. That's okay. But what is it we need to do? We need to be willing to humble ourselves and love others. Not lecturing, but acting. Amen? Let's pray.